Welcome to Down to Earth but Heavenly Minded Podcast. The Authority of the Word of God. Part 1. James Boyd. Contents. Explanation. A personal testimony. The Holy Scriptures. The necessity for a revelation. The fall. Is Jesus God? The unchanging one. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. The cross. Propitiation. The resurrection. God's great gift. The love of God. The love of the Father. The love of Christ. The love of the brethren. The Son of God and the Scriptures. The man of God's counsels. The Son of Man. In Christ. The heathen. Abiding in the doctrine. Scripture Truth 1932, Volume 24, Page 24. Correspondence. The evil, of which we are warned in 2 John, seem to be in going forward, that is, adding to the revealed thoughts of God things that are not plainly in the text. This would set forth a Christ, not the Christ of God, but a Christ after the mind and heart of man. The Christ of God is one who has come in flesh, a real man in flesh and blood, otherwise he could not have made propitiation for our sins. But apart altogether from what we might deduce from the denial of this holy and all-important truth the word of God is plain and definite, John chapter 1 verse 14, Hebrews chapter 2 verse 14. The man who does not confess this great truth of the incarnation has not God. But he who abides in the doctrine has both the Father and the Son. Anyone if even a little acquainted with the word is not likely to deny body, soul and spirit to our blessed Lord. But supposing this were denied it would be easy to turn to Luke chapter 23 verse 46, and when Jesus had cried with a loud voice, he said, Father, into thy hands I commit my spirit. And having said this he gave up the spirit. In Matthew chapter 26 verse 38 he says, My soul is exceeding sorrowful, even unto death. In Hebrews chapter 10 verse 5 he says, A body hast thou prepared me. But out of this another question is raised, and that is, was his body the same as any other human being? To this question the scriptural answer is, no, his was holy. Another important truth to keep in mind is that he was begotten of God. He was God's son. Even if he could be viewed as man only, which I should deny, he still was son of God. Nothing of this was true of any other man. James Boyd. Explanation. The author of these papers is now with the Lord and will write no more, but it is thought that he might yet speak to some through their publication. They are a selection from many that appeared from his pen in the monthly magazine Scripture Truth. The Scriptures were the very word of God to James Boyd, he had a remarkable grasp of the truths they teach and could express in robust language what he had learned from the word, as this volume proves. His uncompromising attitude towards error, his love for the Lord Jesus, his Saviour, his delight in the grace of God that had changed him from an atheist to a child in the family of God are all expressed in these papers and give them a permanent value. A personal testimony. From my earliest days I was of a skeptical turn of mind. I wanted everything brought to the bar of human reason, not realizing how utterly deceptive the reasoning of a mind away from God must be. Had I been able to face the fact of my natural aversion to all that was of God I would not have trusted my mind in the things that concerned my relations with him. I might have seen that any natural antipathy to a report must always exercise a hindrance to faith in it. Though brought up in a godly atmosphere I absolutely turned away from all so-called places of worship when I left home, and I left home very early in life. To argue the question I was more than willing, but to sit quietly and hear the unfolding of the grace of God was more than my pride of heart would endure. I wanted, still want, everything proven. It is plain enough that a mind like that can only be caught through a sense of need. It betrays a hardened condition of soul, as well as a haughty spirit. It is not that I was at any time indifferent to the great question of a future state. The very opposite was the case. The question was ever uppermost in my thoughts. Indeed, I never could well understand how anyone was able to shelve such a momentous consideration. 
I ate my food without raising questions about how it could be converted into blood, bone, and muscle. But to the bread of life I was able to raise more objections than anyone who took an interest in my soul was able to meet. For this reason I have said that such a person can only be caught by his need. To my daily bread I had no objection, but the bread of life was not palatable, I had no appetite for it. I should have been thankful could I have been assured either of the favor of God, or of annihilation as the alternative, but no one could assure me of either. The kind of gospel to which I was accustomed was of a very legal type, and though Christ was spoken of as the alone saviour of sinners, peculiarly enough and to my mind unreasonably, I was given to understand that I had my part to do. This part was never clearly defined, and bewildered by this mixture of Judaism and Christianity, I drifted into the region of practical infidelity. I had no light, and judge everyone else to be in the same darkness as myself. But an aching void was in my heart which all the pleasures of the world were unable to satisfy. At length, through the solicitation of a servant of God, I was led to take up the scriptures and read them, though as far as the text goes I was by no means ignorant of them. But there came right home to my soul the feeling that if the book was of God it could be like no other book that ever was written. And that I could not read it without knowing that it was his word, that is, if it was. As I read, I said to myself, no one on earth knows me as I know myself, but the author of this book knows me a great deal better than I know myself. I felt that God was speaking. I found myself under his omniscient eye, and I fell at his feet. The hammer of his word had broken the hard rock to pieces. Then came the moment when a measure of pure gospel broke upon mine ear. It met every need of my soul. It was just the thing which suited my sinful state. It was not the divine within me answering to the truth of God, as some have put it, but it was the need of a poor sinner's conscience met by the blood of Jesus. And the need of the heart met by the love of God. What rest it gave, to me it was like sight to the blind, like bread to the hungry, like water to the thirsty, like clothes to the naked. It needed no proving. I would not have crossed the narrowest street in the city to have had the scriptures proven to be the word of God. What soul in the warmth and light of the noonday sun would waste his time listening to a debate as to whether or no there is such a thing as the sight of the eyes? As far as I was concerned I felt I was in contact with the living Christ, and that God is love. Before this I knew that my conduct was not what it ought to be, but this was as measured by a human standard. Now I saw that what would do for men would not pass with a holy and righteous God. It was no longer a question of human frailty, or of mere mistakes, but of absolute rebellion against God and his Christ. But he who had loved me and had given himself for me was now my righteousness in the presence of God, so that it was no longer the query as to what I was for God, but rather what Christ was for him. This gave solid and lasting peace. By his work on the cross he made an end of my sins, and, as after the flesh, the man that had committed the sins, and into a new and eternal relationship was I brought, and made conscious of that relationship by the power of the Holy Spirit who shed the love of God abroad in my heart. Has this all been a dream, an illusion, an ignis fatus and baseless phantasm of a sick brain? If it is, I am to be pitied, for I have been under it for over half a century, and the sweetness, joy and delight of it have steadily increased from the first day until now. A sight, hearing, feeling, life, love, existence, delusions. A people conscious that they are alive in flesh and blood. Have they any fears that after all they may not be alive but dead? Would anyone thank you for stopping him on the street and assuring him that he was alive? You say, that would be absurd. So it would, but believers in the Lord Jesus are by the quickening power of God in the life of Christ, and have the Holy Spirit dwelling in them. Is this life, then, which they have in the power of the indwelling Spirit, not as real as is the life of flesh and blood? James Boyd, The Holy Scriptures. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God.
2 Timothy chapter 3 verse 16. The Holy Scriptures are like no other writing. All other writings have had their origin in the mind of man, and with the conviction and expectation that the mind of the reader shall be able to grasp the meaning of that which is written. But this is not at all true of the Scriptures. It is not only not assumed by the writers of Holy Scripture that the mind of man will be able to seize the thoughts therein recorded, but its inability to do so is very distinctly affirmed, 1 Corinthians chapter 2 verse 14. Ephesians chapter 1 verse 17, Colossians chapter 1 verse 9, and Luke chapter 24 verse 45. The Holy Spirit, who inspired the writers, is the only one who can enable us to understand that which he has caused to be placed on record for our instruction in the mind of God. Therefore a mere study of the word, however necessary it be to study it, is not of itself sufficient to place us in possession of the thoughts of God. It is necessary that we should read it, pay attention to all that it brings before us, believe it even when we do not grasp its meaning, and meditate upon its precious utterances. But this should be done in prayerful dependence upon its gracious author, and in distrust of our own natural reason, which is always infidel, and always infidel just because it is our reason, the reason of fallen flesh, which ever revolves in its own blind orbit, excluding every ray of light divine. This should not discourage the student of the Bible, but rather the opposite, for I would point out the true and only way of gaining knowledge, also where, and how it is to be found. It must be found in the Word, for it is there, and nowhere else, and there should be the utmost confidence in it as a revelation from God. Attention must be given to its most minute details, for there is nothing unnecessary placed on record, nor shall we therein find any vain repetitions crowding its pages. Neither must we imagine that any question has arisen amongst his people, unforeseen by him, since upon him, who knows the end from the beginning, it is impossible for the enemy to deliver a surprise attack. Every assault of the wily foe, every twist given to its evident meaning by the stubborn sectarian, who would compel it to lend its support to his miserable counterfeit of the truth, every dogmatic display of isolated texts, wrenched away from the proper connection in order to turn the heart from the living Christ in heaven, all was foreseen by the author of this wonderful book, and ample provision made for its detection and exposure. It is a sharp sword for the human conscience, of which the devil himself has often felt the edge. It is a light that lays bare the secret chambers of the heart of man, and manifests its deceitful intentions, with all its bitter enmity against God. But at the same time it reveals the heart of God in all his fathomless love to the guilty. It guides the footsteps of the pilgrim through this wilderness where there is no way, and discloses before his heavenward gaze that celestial home, in which there is fullness of joy, and where pleasures forevermore reside. In its spontaneous praises, melody made by the heavenly hierarchs and the myriads of redeemed are heard. And amid the rumbling of the thunders of its wrath can be detected the wailing of those who have passed beyond the borderland of hope and have entered into regions of despair. It gives us a glimpse into the eternity that is past, and also directs our forward glance to the rest of God, and to the day when all things are made new, bathed in the glory of redemption. The characteristics of the children of the devil it faithfully delineates, and describes minutely those of the children of God. The plottings and the drivelings of the human mind are therein recorded, as are also the counsels of eternal love. The folly of the creature, the wisdom of the creator, the way of falsehood, the way of truth, the way of righteousness, the way of sin, the way of life, the way of death, the way of man. The way of God, all is therein recorded for our enlightenment and eternal blessing, and happy is the man whose confidence is in its heavenly origin, and whose heart and mind are well stored with its precious truths. Its blessings are health-imparting, exalting, and enriching, and its anathemas are blasting, bewildering, abasing, and impoverishing. Obedience to its precepts purifies the soul, and rebellion against its commandments hardens the heart, benumbs the conscience, and deadens the sensibilities. It criticizes its critics, judges its judges, makes liars of its calumniators, and forever justifies its friends.
It will have the last word at the last day, and from its sentence there shall be no appeal. It is a wellspring of living water in this arid waste, and living bread in this famine-stricken land. It makes the deaf to hear, the blind to see, and the dead to live. In the might of the Spirit it is living and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit, and of the joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. God has magnified his word above all his name, and as to the one who despises its testimony, good were it for that man had he never been born. Therefore am I far from discouraging anyone who would seek to study the contents of this wonderful volume. God has given it to us in his marvelous grace, and he would have us approach it with fear and trembling, not because we are not free from its anathemas, for through the grace of God and the blood of Jesus, every believer is justified from all things and set in new and eternal relationships with him in Christ, but because of its holy and sacred character. There is no condemnation in its pages for the believer in Christ. His redemption by the blood of Jesus, his relationship to God, and his eternal security, occupy a large place in that sacred volume, but just because it is a revelation of God, it is to be approached with holy reverence, and not with the lightness with which one may take up any other book. The necessity for a revelation. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Romans chapter 10 verse 17. It is late in the history of the world to be going into the question of the origin of a book, which began to be written about 4,000 years ago and the writing of which extended over half that time, but late or early, the question seems with some people to be still undecided, and open to debate. And certainly the antiquity of the dispute does not in the least lessen its importance, neither does it tend to diminish the ardour of the combatants, nor the interest of the onlookers. It is a question which no thoughtful person will ever relegate to a secondary place in man's pursuit of knowledge, for the tremendous claim made by the book itself, causes the question of its title to that claim. To take the precedence of all others nor are men really able to treat the question with indifference. The sang-froid which characterizes some who profess to have settled the matter in favor of thick darkness, as opposed to a revelation from God, bears the stamp of being only skin-deep, and not the outcome of honest conviction. It scarcely needs to be asserted that the leaders of the world bear the book no good will, but rather the opposite, and therefore has it been subjected to ceaseless hostility, and to a criticism more fierce than that which has fallen to the lot of any other writing. It has been, and is, more fervently loved, and more intensely hated, than all the rest of the world's books put together, and the strange thing about its history is that the house of its supposed friends is the place where it has been most sorely wounded. Those who have been foremost in their protestations of zeal in the service of its author have shown themselves to be its worst enemies, and in their custody it had to remain for ages, a prisoner in bonds. How it survived the persecutions to which it was exposed is almost as great a miracle as is the way in which it was given to man. Thank God, the days of its incarceration are over, and it is free to tread its pathway of blessing throughout the wide world. In the days of Luther a moral resurrection took place through the grace of God. The German monk who eventually shook the throne of the proud Bishop of Rome, saw in the dim cloister, through its sacred page, a light above the brightness of the sun. And when his voice arose heralding in the ears of men, the life-giving words of the dusty roll, the wheel of the papal chariot became scotched forever, the powers of darkness were alarmed. And hell stood aghast before the boldness of this daring man. The power of God made itself felt, and the tiara trembled on the brow of him who trafficked in the souls of men, as he saw the hope of his gains vanishing from before his eyes. Men began to speak their minds more openly, the priestly bondage under which they had groaned was no longer discussed in whispers, and even kings began to breathe more freely. For the epistle of the apostle to the Romans now clung at the throat of the Italian prelate. Such is the power of this most wonderful book.
It declares itself to be of heavenly origin, the very words of the living God, breathed into the hearts and minds of his servants, and penned by them as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. No other communications on earth make such claim to universal homage. The writers dive away back into the past eternity, before sun, planet, or attendant satellite gleamed forth upon the brow of heaven, and bring to light the secret counsels of the Eternal Father. It shows us those counsels worked out in time by the Eternal Son, in the power of the Eternal Spirit. Until the final result of all the activities of the triune God bursts upon our vision in a new heaven and a new earth, crowned with the glory of the tabernacle of God, in the midst of redeemed creation, in which righteousness shall dwell forever. It tells us of the beginning of all things, of the fall of the devil, of the fall of man, of God's gracious dealings with the latter when fallen, of the love of God, of the death of Christ, of his resurrection, of his session at the right hand of God, of his coming again, and of the subjugation of everything to himself. It leads the heart and mind into things unseen, and regales the soul with unutterable delights in the sanctuary of eternal love. It opens up before our vision the blackness of darkness, the God-forsaken region of despair, where ceaselessly rage the tempests of almighty wrath. It brings to light the corrupt God-hating heart of fallen man, and the infinite and holy love of a Saviour God. It guides us to the fountain of all good, and shows us, but brings us not nigh, the source of evil. It describes the ceaseless conflict between these two opposing forces a down the black history of a fallen world, until the day in which the battle is brought to a conclusion by the triumph of good. And the heavens and the earth are purified from the presence of evil, which finds its place, with the devil who brought it into existence, in the lake of fire. The eternal abode of that liar, and, murderer. It declares that God is, love. Creation presents him as infinite in wisdom and power, but we see evil rampant around us, and man beneath its merciless hoof. There are traces of his goodness everywhere, and in the midst of its unutterable woes, gladness of heart visits the most unfortunate. But the fact that the griefs of the human race are so freely interspersed with innumerable joys, only makes the puzzle of man's existence all the more intricate and difficult of solution. If it were all evil one would be in measure justified in attributing the creation to the caprice of a demon, and were it all good the aspersion of the true character of God would be unpardonable. But to find these two principles everywhere, and mixed together in a struggling and hopeless melee, with evil ever apparently triumphant, is bewildering to the finite mind. The woes of the human race are beyond the possibility of exaggeration, and seem to rise up at every turn as a witness against the notion of infinite goodness, for if God be all-powerful, how is it that for so many millenniums his creature has been left in this corner of his creation to welter unpitied in his wretchedness? Can the Creator be indifferent to the woes of his creature? Who can tell us? Is there no voice from him? I am certain if there is no revelation from God, there is no God. But the whole universe around me bears witness to the reality of a Creator, and although the visible things do not contain the secret of the nature of him who brought him into existence, there is enough of evidence borne by them, to convince every intelligent being that he, without whom a sparrow cannot fall to the ground, could not leave his poor creature without some ray of light as to how he stands with respect to his holy and righteous will. The idea of a universe such as surrounds us, without a creator, is to me unthinkable, and that man should be brought forth to fall a prey to his wretched lusts, and to grope his weary and painful way to the grave in suffocating gloom, squabbling with his fellows about questions upon which none can boast of having one ray of light, and which never can be solved, is just as unthinkable. I find myself so formed that I am unable to get away from the idea of a creator, and one with whom I have to do, I am also impressed with the fact that my maker is beneficent. For of this I see abundant traces on every hand, and I am sure of this also that he has not left man in any clime without witnesses to his beneficence. I have tried to get away from the thought of a being with whom I had to do, and I have not been able.
I have done my best to get out of my mind the conviction that he has spoken, and in this I have been likewise unsuccessful. Where, and how, he has spoken, is another matter, but spoken he has, of this I am convinced. Man must have some light, and God will give it to him, even though he is certain to be unfaithful to it. Without testimony I am sure God will never leave him. I am not at present saying from whence such thoughts came to me, I am only speaking of the way I seem to be impressed as I look around me and meditate upon that which I see taking place on the earth. We would be worse off than the beasts had we no light from God, for they are not burdened with the terror of having to do with him, and we are. The question is not, has God spoken? But, how? I shall be told at once that it is not by the Bible. But I must ask, why not by the Bible? Shall I be met with the stereotyped objection that it is full of contradictions, and is altogether wrong as to the plan of the universe, that it makes it geocentric, and has spoken of the earth as a plane? It has done nothing of the kind. It is so carefully written, that its statements never jar upon the mind of the most advanced scientist, nor do they cause the most illiterate to move in the direction of astronomical discovery. But may I ask, what impression does the universe convey to the mind of the ordinary mortal, as he looks abroad into the starry night from his cottage door? Will he not conceive of the earth as a flat plane, and the dome of heaven as a hemisphere, resting upon the rim of the earth? Could he who is infinite in wisdom have made the visible things no other way? The truth is that the heavens and the earth are so ordered that moral impressions are conveyed to the mind. Everything away from earth is upward and above man, and man is made to look upward to God who has his dwelling place in the heaven. The Bible has a way of its own, by which it leaves these impressions undisturbed. If it gave other impressions, and taught the Newtonian theory, we might with some show of reason conclude that the God of creation is not the God of the Bible. I am not attempting to prove by this, that the Bible owes its origin to the Creator, I am only showing that if the Bible leaves undisturbed the impression that creation itself gives to the naked eye of the ordinary observer, that is no proof against the divine origin of the scriptures. There are many other objections advanced by the infidel mind of man, but they are all equally worthless, and have been disposed of again and again. Man naturally hates the light, and this is why the Bible is ever the great object of attack. But though man may, and does, hate the light, it has come into this dark world for the salvation of his immortal soul. What other light has he which shows him God fully declared? He is of few days and full of sorrow, and in the end has to submit to death, and where it will land him he knows not. It is a foe fronted with terror, blind to the sight of misery, deaf to all entreaties, and dumb with regard to where it conducts its victim. It has been in the world for nigh six thousand years, and men know as little about it today, as they did at the beginning. Men hope it will lead to something better than the present life, but what proof have we that the region into which it leads, is not more replete with horrors than is the one out of which it conducts us? Were it an angel of light sent to escort us into a scene of joy and endless tranquility, would its aspect be so full of terrors, or its weapons so dreaded? Surely not. We need some light from God, for death gives us no reason to suppose that, however bad it may be here, it is any better beyond. A beneficent creator will not leave his creature without testimony. A revelation is a necessity both for his glory and our blessing, and this revelation we gratefully recognize in the scriptures. The fall, by one man sin entered the world, and death by sin. Romans chapter 5 verse 12. No other book has ever received a similar amount of attention at the hand of friend and foe. The contentions concerning its sayings have been continuous, cruel, and sanguinary. Hell has stormed at it, earth has hallooed after it, and fires have been kindled with the parchments upon which it was written, but its lovers have succored it, sheltered it, cherished it, studied its pages, imbibed its life-giving utterances, and with the precious volume clasped within their trembling hands, and its heavenly truths engraven upon their hearts, they have passed away from earth into the presence of him of whom it speaks.
It has been loved with all the love of the human heart under the influence of heaven, and it has been hated with all the hatred of the soul under the influence of the abyss of evil. On its account men have ever been ready to kill, or to be killed. The world will not have it, and yet it remains in it. The more it has been persecuted, the more it has multiplied and grown. In defense of its sayings the heart's blood of thousands has been freely poured forth. Its followers have been counted the off-scourings of the earth, and have been murdered without mercy. They have been reckoned by the world as sheep for the slaughter, cast out among the unclean, the lawless and the transgressors, hunted among mountains, dens, and caves of the earth, and slaughtered wherever they were found. But when the world was finished with them, God came out and wrote their epitaph, and it reads thus. Of whom the world was not worthy. Like him of whom it testifies it finds itself in a world hostile to its teachings, and therefore is it despised and rejected of men. But like him it passes onward in its unostentatious pathway of mercy, doing good, and healing all oppressed of the devil, for God is with it. Into an evil world it has come. But with a world not evil it would have no mission here. Had man remained as God made him such a revelation would have been unnecessary, for when he was made he had all the light needful to maintain him in the relationship in which he was placed with his maker. But fallen man must have light beyond what was required for an innocent creation, if ever he is to be recovered for God. But the wiselings of today will not believe that man is fallen. If he is not fallen he must be as God made him, and if he is as God made him I fail to see how he can be improved. Yet those who contend against the truth of the fall are the people who are loudest in their demands for such legislation as will enable them to set about improving the race. Could I be led to believe that God made man as he is, I would have to discard the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, and substitute in his place an evil being. It is impossible to entertain the idea of a creator, and have any other thought than that everything created by him has been created for his pleasure. And indeed this is just what scripture teaches, for thy pleasure they are, and were created, Revelation chapter 4 verse 11. Therefore if there has been no fall, and men are as he made them, and consequently just in the condition in which he takes delight, and if he takes delight in them as I see them. What kind of a being is he? Men make things in which they can take delight, and by which they may be served, and no man will intentionally and premeditatedly make anything that will be a grief to his heart. And I am sure the creator will not. Therefore he must be understood by the state, the moral state, in which his creature is created. Now the heavens are said in scripture to declare the glory of God, Psalm chapter 19, but the earth never. Looking upward at the heavens with our natural eyes everything appears to us in the most perfect order. There is no confusion there, no conflict between the heavenly bodies, everything moves in the most perfect harmony together, there is no trespass committed by one inhabitant of the blue expanse against its neighbor. There is no noise of contending forces, one spirit seems to permeate the vast heavenly host, and all is peace. But when we turn to earth it is hell let loose. A pandemonium of discord jars upon the ear. Violence and corruption are seen everywhere. Scenes of horror fill the vision, and groans of despair grate upon the ear. Hatred, falsehood, outrage, murder, and suicide, stalk naked through the land. Pestilence, famine, hunger, nakedness, and death, cause the shriek of anguish to drown the revelry of gladsome day, and rend the bosom of the black-browed night. And I am told man is not fallen. We are told that man is just as he should be at the present moment of his history, but that he will not ever be thus. He is struggling upward, and the goal is within measurable distance. Is it, from my observation of the progress things are making I should say he is struggling downward, and making very rapid progress in his descent? That men are better educated than they were a century ago is not in question. Possibly the poor eat better, and are better clothed also, but that men are more moral, that they love one another better, that they are more law-abiding, that they are less selfish. 
that they are more faithful in their relations of life, and that they are more to be trusted than they were a century ago, I do not believe. Take away the steam engine and the dynamo-electric machine, dispense with railway, telegraph, and telephone, and with all the trappings of the present century civilization, and have a good look at society. And you will find little to boast in above the savage. We are told that nobody believes the Genesis account of the fall. One often wonders what kind of company these Bible critics keep. I think I might safely undertake to find some thousands of people who have never questioned it, and these are not men who readily take things for granted. It is asserted that the offence committed by Adam in the Garden of Eden was of too trivial a nature to entail such consequences. But this seems to me to be a very superficial and foolish kind of reasoning. I fail to see that it could have made any real difference what test it might have pleased God to apply to man. The gravity of man's offence is not to be estimated by the intrinsic value of the article purloined, there was nothing in that at all. He might have eaten of that tree as well as of any other had it not been forbidden. The interdiction against eating of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil ought not to have been difficult for Adam to observe, it was not a heavy rent to pay for such a large estate. He was the vice-regent of God upon earth, made so by his indulgent creator, and the tree which was forbidden to him was the witness that the earth and the fullness thereof were the Lord's. And that Adam was not sole proprietor. The tree became a test of his loyalty to his creator. The tribute demanded from him was a mere bagatelle, but this very fact made his transgression all the more inexcusable. Had the toll demanded from the creature been a heavy tax upon his resources, compassion for the rebel would have been more pardonable. But the trivial tax upon such enormous wealth brought to light the hidden secret of the rebel's heart, and the creature is manifested in his attempt to grasp divinity itself. This was the bait which the arch-deceiver of mankind dangled before the eyes of his victim, and which tempted him to transgress the commandment. Why should he have desired to be on equality with God? He should have had confidence enough in the goodness of his Creator to have enabled him to refuse such a bait. But I need not waste words in bringing the gravity of the offence of Adam into light, the reader knows his own natural heart well enough to be conscious of the fact that, if he were able to bring its desires about, no one would occupy the throne of the universe but himself. In this world every man seeks to get all the power into his own hands, and had he the throne of the world it would not satisfy him, he would want the throne of the universe also. This suggestion instilled into the heart of Adam by the devil will reach its culmination in the man of sin, who will allow no one to worship any god but himself. He will take the place of God upon earth, and will put to death all who resist his blasphemous pretensions, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 and Revelation chapter 13. But in spite of man's denial that he is in a fallen condition, and in spite of his claim to be something, he is really ashamed to come out in the truth of his condition. We shelter ourselves from the inquisitiveness of our neighbours, and resent every attempt made by them to scrutinise our affairs. It may be nothing but idle curiosity prompts them to get near to us, but it is not because we know this that we so strongly resent their advances, and determine to hold them at arm's length. Were we certain they could not find anything discreditable about us, we should not be so upset by their unmanned curiosity. Were everything that could be known about us creditable to us, we would be glad to be manifested before the assembled universe but we shrink from exposure because we are unfit to be seen as we really are. This is very strange, especially as we know that others are no better than ourselves. They shrink from our penetrating gaze as timidly as we do from theirs. But the knowledge of this does not help us, or make us bolder, for each of us has got his own secrets, of which he is rightly ashamed. Like Ham we are ready to sneer at the nakedness of our neighbour, but we are all very careful, when in our senses, not to babble into the ear of the world the secrets of our own guilty lives. My neighbour does not know me as I know myself, and I am determined that he shall remain in his ignorance. We keep our respective distances.
I do not pry into the thoughts of his heart, and I expect the same consideration from him. This is all, fig leaves. We are very pleased to find that people do not walk about in their naked hideousness, and should one of us expose himself in his moral degradation. We feel it to be an offense against all that is becoming, and insulting to society. Each person is at liberty to think whatever he pleases, and he may do what he pleases, as long as it does not injure his neighbor, but he must be careful that it does not get abroad. He must wear the fig leaves, or become ostracized from society. Some of these haters of the Bible cannot understand any intelligent person continuing to believe in the fall of man as it is taught in Genesis. We are told that the legend was in existence as oral tradition long before Genesis was written. How it could be otherwise I am at a loss to know, and were it otherwise the fact would go far to prove it mere fiction. That the human race could be ignorant of the fall until Moses wrote the account of it is inconceivable. It was bound to travel with the posterity of Adam down the centuries. No doubt it would lose nothing by the telling in its travels, and therefore is it found in distorted forms in various countries, but in Genesis we have it in its simple naked truth. We are told by some that it is scarcely alluded to in the Old Testament writings. Why should it be? Where was the need for constant repetition? It is referred to, however, but had I found it very frequently referred to by the prophets, it would greatly have depended upon the setting in which I found it. Whether my suspicion as to the writer's faith in it would not have been aroused. Indeed it is seldom referred to in the New Testament, and when it is referred to, it is not hard to see the writer takes it for granted that those to whom he writes do not question the fact. It has no need to be proven in a world like this. The difficulty with the philosophers of the world seems to lie in the fact that, whether man be fallen or not, his moral state is far from being satisfactory. As a general thing God is either altogether left out, as regards the theories of these men, or everything is God, whether it be man, bird, beast, reptile, or spunk. A God who is objective to his creation, neither of them confess. The evolutionists have got the whole creation upon a ladder whose top and bottom are both alike enveloped in impenetrable gloom. What he came from and what he is to arrive at are wrapped in obscurity. They think man is advancing toward a perfect state, but what that state is to be they know not. Some of us are quite certain that man is retrograding. That those who call themselves Christians are on the downgrade, no one will question who reads the second chapter of the Acts of the Apostles and believes it to be a true account of the state of things in the church at the beginning. That men in these islands are better governed than they were in the Middle Ages goes without saying, but if the crowd were let loose today, who would not tremble for the consequences? The deeds of the French Revolution, if not worse, would be repeated. I fail therefore to see how men are better morally. I may be told that the fact that good laws exist is in itself a proof of a better moral state. I cannot accept it, for men do not make laws for themselves but for their fellows. Those who make them are often found guilty of breaking them. The luster of the world is artificial, what is natural is corrupt. Under an apparently well-ordered community smolders a veritable hell of horrible rebellion, and this the powers that be will learn one of these days. Those who think they see God in everything are, in their own imagination, themselves God, and the fall is the incarnation of God in nature, so they tell us. This mysterious power, which is themselves and the spung, and all that lies between in the way of life, is finding expression in the universe. And they tell us that it is only as we read him in the universe that we can know anything about him. God, we are told, can only know his own capabilities as he is confronted by opposing forces, therefore he creates the forces that he may become known to himself. If I could so degrade myself as to accept such a horrible idea, I would be very much interested in knowing what he thinks of himself, when he sees himself in the universe.
Is this great mysterious power contemplating himself in the battlefield, where men, who know not why they are pitted against one another, maim and murder until their feet slip in the hot red heart blood of friend and foe? I wonder what the god of these men's imagination thinks of himself as he looks at the violence and corruption which fill the earth, and at nature foaming at the mouth and red in tooth and claw with raven. How strange it is that man will have anything as a god, rather than the god and father of our Lord Jesus Christ. The reason, surely, is that if I confess him, I must myself go down in the dust in his presence, and confess myself to be a poor, fallen, unworthy sinner, dependent upon his mercy and grace for my salvation. Pride has no place in the presence of the true God, and therefore must the proud heart of man be ever in deadly hostility to him. Blessed be his name, he can so work in his grace in our hearts that we are made to acknowledge the truth of the book which discovers us to ourselves, and, turning to him in the judgment of ourselves, to leave the decision of our eternal welfare in his own hand.